0: Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> um, My name is John Allen. Welcome to Risen Church. Um, happy Labor Day weekend. You guys are like, Labor Day? What even is that? You're like, you know, like I get Memorial Day, I get like other holidays, but what is Labor Day, right? Sometimes uh, I think we can lose sight of that stuff. Um, this is actually one of those, I think most of the time we think of Labor Day weekend as just like a milestone For the year. Like you know, it's Labor Day, which means the tourist season in Virginia Beach is over and we can actually get the boardwalk back for the locals, right? That's pretty much what we think. Or, 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 you know, school is starting back, like the summer's ended. You know, we're entering into a new season and new rhythms. Um, But Labor Day is actually, believe it or not, a national holiday um, that's designed to celebrate the achievements of the labor force in our nation. (laughs) And actually, it started in the late 1800s to celebrate laborers who toil uh, for the growth and development of our nation, um, and we are to celebrate them each year uh, with sort of a long weekend. Um, And honestly, like, look, I know that that's kind of like, it just, you're like, it's President's Day, it's Labor Day, like, what is it? Like, we don't really know, it just means, you know, we get to go to the beach on Monday, right? Right. but that is something worth celebrating. Like, toiling and laboring for fruitful causes is good. Amen? It's worth, especially after this year. Right? Like, I think we probably have a deeper appreciation for how important the labor force in our nation actually is. Right? But the truth is, the idea of work and labor, it's, it's got a lot of negative connotations. And, and it's not just in our generation, right? This isn't a sermon on laziness, don't worry. Um, but, like, we think about work, it's like you got work, and then you got play, right? Like, work is difficult, play is fun, Right? All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy, you know, or Jack. I don't know what the name of the kid is, but whatever. Is it Jack? I think it's Jack. All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Is that right? Yeah. Um, but the idea of building, cultivating, creating, producing, sustaining, um, they kind of all get lumped in with negative connotation. Why? Think about this. Why? Because in our world, work is difficult. And in this world, work is difficult frustrating. Even for the most successful people, by even our society's standards, our labors in this world can leave us extremely unsatisfied, right? There tends to be this kind of elusive feeling in us that if we can just produce this or achieve that or accomplish that particular goal or objective, then, then we can rest, If I can get there, if I can do that, if I can achieve this, then I'll be okay. Then it'll be all right. If I can get my bank account to this place, if I can get that uh, title or job or get into that school or get my kids to this place, then it's going to be all right. Then we can be at peace. So we strive for those things. We toil for those things. We work to cultivate and create to see things grow. And we do it by the sweat of our brow. And often we see fruit, right? I mean, we do see fruitfulness in this world, but that process is extremely frustrating because often that fruit even is fleeting. It's unsatisfying. As soon as we sit down and take a little break and enjoy the fruit of our labors, Right? It seems like the whole field turns into thorns and thistles. Like it all just dries up. Again, or the fruit is just, isn't as satisfying or lasting as you thought it was going to be. It's got that kind of like dry thistle quality to it. Like a lot of that, like it's a letdown. You thought it was going to be this great, but you're like, you you bite into the fruit and you're like, whoa. There's no juice in this. There's no nourishment to it and that can often lead to apathy or dilapathy there's a new word apathy that's laziness and apathy combined Lapathy. <laughs> it can often lead to apathy or 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 like disillusionment that does again lead to laziness because you know what's the point why even try this is where that stuff is all rooted It's where it comes from. See, this is part of the curse that was placed on Adam in Genesis 3. It's a symptom of a broken world that we would toil by the sweat of our brow. In Genesis 3, God said, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread you till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. you see, we ate a fruit that we weren 't supposed to. we chose to go our own way and to follow our own will rather than the will of the one who is actually good. we declared we 're good and we know better that 's essentially what happened and why this whole world has been twisted into the desert status state that it's in instead of the garden that it was supposed to be, created to be. So the direct result of our disobedience to God's will is, as King Solomon later put it, a sense of vain striving against the wind just to survive. Like God designed us to cultivate and flourish in a garden, but sin has caused us to toil and simply survive in a desert wasteland. That's what it feels like in this world. Even when you think it's safe and everything's good, something happens, and you're like, what? It's why so many people committed suicide when the markets fell during the Great Depression. It's why so many in our society turned to drugs and alcohol to numb that sense of frustration, inadequacy, and meaninglessness, which is absolutely terrorizing society right now. The shocker, which shouldn't be a shocker, is that it always has. So we were designed to cultivate and create and steward and produce fruit. We were designed to work the garden and facilitate flourishing in all creation. We were created on purpose, for purpose, and not just any purpose, God's kingdom purpose. For His will to be done. See, where humanity flourishes together and reigns with God in creation, that's heaven. We were created for fruitful labor. Like, labor's not bad. It's not a part of the fall. Work is not bad. But for anyone who labors in this world for any length of time, you know that the fruit of our earthly labors to build our earthly kingdoms eventually just produces thorns and thistles, and it it feels meaningless, like you're digging a hole, and you're filling it back up. It's almost as though we are made of dust, and to dust we will return. Frustration, disappointment, disillusionment. So, welcome to church. Um, This Labor Day weekend, I want to present you with the redemption of all of that. I want to show you, and not just one day, I'm talking about now. I want to show you how Christ has broken the curse and provides us with a kind of labor that produces eternally satisfying and unfading reward. I want to look at a kind of labor and a toil that cultivates, creates, and does not disappoint. The kind that's not in vain. You see, Jesus broke every curse through the cross and resurrection. John 10.10 says that the thief, Jesus actually says this in John 10.10, that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But he says that I have come that you may have life more abundant. Now, hear me. The prosperity gospel preachers will tell you that Jesus has come to infuse your earthly kingdoms with prosperity. That it's all about this life and your health, wealth, and comfort now. Right? That if you follow Jesus, he'll make you healthy, wealthy, and wise according to this world's standards and for your own glory. Right? But the truth is that Jesus came to take your eyes off of building your own kingdoms and and building and, and receiving your own glory, and that all that stuff is temporary, right? Like all that stuff can be stolen and destroyed. The kind of abundant life that Jesus is talking about is the kind that comes from seeking first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness even now, and trusting that God will provide all the rest. This is essentially everything that he's talking about in Matthew 6. Now, it may well be in abundance. Nothing wrong with abundance in this life. There's nothing wrong with prosperity in this life. Like, build wealth and prosper. Be blessed, right? (laughs) That's good. But don't let that be the priority of your heart. That's the danger. Jesus talked about it a lot. Because if the material things of this world are your priority, then you're still operating under the curse of Genesis 3. You see this? And it's all just a vain striving. But Jesus came to set you free from all of that. And he invites his people to partner together in this gospel good news of the kingdom, his kingdom. He invites us to toil, listen to this. He invites you, he invites me, he invites us, his church, his local church, his covenant community to toil and to strive and to sacrifice and to build a greater kingdom that's unfading and comes with an eternal reward that's kept for you with a weight of glory. Now. Now. It's a call to labor on the earth for his kingdom and for his glory to come on earth as it is in heaven, in every area of your life, from the home to the marketplace and beyond, in every aspect. No matter what you're doing, if you're a spirit-filled follower of King Jesus, then you've been called and empowered to do whatever you do, whether in word or deed, according to Colossians 3, that we are to do it as unto the Lord. For his glory and in the name of Jesus Christ. And wherever you set your foot, his rule and reign operates there. You've been anointed and empowered to that end. Right? This morning, we've come to Revelation 20, verse 11 through 15, in our series through the book of Revelation called Victory Unveiled. And I love this series because it's such a big picture series, man. It talks about, like, the point Because it's the wrapping up of the redemptive story. That's why we get so much big theological perspective in this letter. And last week, we walked through the first 10 verses of chapter 20, which presented a vision of the reign of Christ in and through his people. And then we got another vision of the final and total defeat of Satan. Right? We get the, 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 the physical veil is pulled back and we get to see the reality of what's going on in and around us. Not just what was happening to them then in the first century, but also what's happening around us now and what will be revealed in the future. That's what we're looking at. So the title of last week's message was, Victory Unveiled, Your Kingdom Come. This morning, we're going to finish chapter 20 with a third vision. So the first vision we saw, again, we saw a vision of the reign of Christ and through his people. And then another vision we got of uh, the final and total defeat of Satan. And then this week, we're going to look at the third vision of chapter 20 that presents us with the great white throne of judgment. (laughs) Right? Like, we've come, that's right, to judgment day. Now, before you get all intimidated and overwhelmed, right, and you're like, oh, gosh, judgment again. Like, I want to remind you here of who this letter is written to. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. Like, you need to remember that this letter was originally written to The first century church who was dealing with major persecution from an evil and wicked regime that was oppressing them and killing them. It was a letter of hope and encouragement. You see, when most people think of the great white throne of judgment or judgment day, they think of a dreaded encounter with the Almighty where all that was done in the dark will be brought to the light. And they're not wrong. That is exactly what it is. But what I want you to see this morning is that that's not all that it is. Don't miss what the beauty is proclaiming here in Scripture. Like, see, in order to receive Christ as Lord and Savior, you've got to come to grips with the reality that he sees you now as you truly are. He sees you now in light. You ain't hiding from him. Like, it's not like, oh, we're going to be in the light then, but now he got and see what happened last night. Like, that's not how this goes. Right? Like, you gotta, you've got to come to grips now. This is what Christianity is. It's those who have come to grips with the fact that he sees us as we are. To come to grips with the fact that the love of Christ then is not blind to your failures and your shortcomings. The love of Christ is not blind. It sees everything. And he still loves you. And he still died for you. That's the truth. He sees you as you are, sins and all, and his eyes are flames of fire that consume all pretension. We are currently fully exposed in his sight, and yet his offer is to come to me just as you are, and I will make you clean. He invites us to walk in the light of life now as he is in the light to lay down all vain notions of our own capacity to measure up and and receive his all-sufficient grace that was poured out for us at the cross. So he invites the one who has been vainly striving in the desert to receive his grace and to have their lives reoriented towards his love and his will because he's not just Savior, he's also King. See, everyone in the world will stand before the all-consuming eyes of Christ the King on that day of judgment. Yes, that's what we're getting ready to look here. Look at here, right? But for the Christian, you got to get this. This day of judgment isn't something we dread. This is our hope because he is our hope. Like the judge, get this. The judge is your deliverer. It's not like the guy on the throne is like I'm upset. And then Jesus is like, look, hey, it's okay. He's the one on the throne. You need to get this. He is your, your mediator. Your, your, uh, the one who died for you is the one who judges you. The judge is our deliverer. The judge is the one who wipes away every tear. The king is also our savior who not only calls me friend, but he also calls me beloved. This is all because of the cross. This is all through the blood of Christ. So while the great white throne of judgment may may be a place of dread for the rest of the world, if you are in Christ, this is the day of our deliverance. Remember, this letter was written again to the early church as a source of hope and encouragement in the midst of extremely difficult circumstances. And this is our reminder of the victory that we hold in Christ and our ultimate vindication. And this passage passage is no exception. In fact, this passage is the ultimate unveiling of our victory in Christ. So, again, last week, the title of the sermon was Your Kingdom Come. Say, Your Kingdom Come. And this week, this is sort of a part two of chapter 20, and the title of this sermon is Your Will Be Done. Say, Your Will Be Done. done. And next week, we're going to look at Revelation 21, which presents the vision of the new heaven and the new earth like a picture of the original garden being restored to an even greater majesty and greater glory than it was before. And a quick preview of the sermon title, guess what it is? On earth as it is in heaven. Say, on earth as it is in heaven. Say your kingdom, your kingdom come. Say your will be done. Will be done. Say on earth, on earth as it is in heaven. All right, let's read through Revelation 20. We're going to look at verse 11 through 15, and then we're going to drop back and walk through it all together. So um, let's read through this passage. We're going to drop back, and I'm going to point out two things, okay? First, I want you to get this. First, you're justified by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. Second, What you do in this life matters. You're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And secondly, what you do in this life matters. Your works do matter. Eternally. So here's what I want you to get this morning if you get nothing else. You ready? Here we go. If you've been justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, then you've not been left alone. You've been set apart by his spirit for the good works of kingdom living. If you've been justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, again, then you've not been left alone. You've been set apart or sanctified by his spirit for the good works. Say good works. works. Of kingdom living. All right, here we go. Revelation 20. Verse 11 through 15. Let's dive in here. Verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. I want you to take your worldly earmuffs off. And I want you to listen to this with the ears of a child of God. If you're not yet a child of God, lean in even harder. This is a vision of hope for God's people. Now, if you don't know Christ, if you're not in Christ, if you've not received what he's done for you on the cross, this is not a vision of hope. You should be terrified of this. You just, this is just, that's just the reality here. But if you are in Christ... This is hope. We got a snapshot of this back in Revelation 11:18, right? The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Like we're seeing that vision here in greater detail. This is the righteous day of judgment. And if you're not in Christ again, this is terrifying and also, hey, Praise God you're here. Welcome. Like I'm so glad you're here. Don't sit here and hear that and go, "Well, I don't belong here." Wrong. <laughs> Welcome. I want you to see this and I want you to keep coming back and leaning in and asking questions and walking through this thing with us. Because this I want you to see how important this is. Cuz this is what King David was looking forward to way back in Psalm 37 verse 1 through 13. He wrote a psalm about it or a song. And from the bottom of his heart, and hear this, tell me if this doesn't resonate with some things in your heart. Verse 1 of Psalm 37 says, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Like, even if you are not in Christ, that ought to resonate. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord, and do good. Say, do good. good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight. Say, "Delight." delight. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. Now, notice this. Gosh, I love this. When you delight yourself in the Lord, He will give you the desires of your heart because he is the desire of your heart. Whether you know it or not, when you delight yourself in the Lord, he gives you the desires of your heart because you were created for him. You were created to delight in him. And you were created to be delighted in by him. See, this passage doesn't mean delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you that job you've been asking for. It doesn't mean that he's going to give you that girl or guy you've been praying for. Now look, again, he loves to answer those very good prayers. He loves to do that, right? But the point of this passage is that when you truly delight yourself in the Lord, you realize that he is all you've ever wanted. When you truly delight yourself in the Lord, you realize that all those other good gifts in creation are just another way to experience his love in different facets. It's a different way of seeing and experiencing and knowing the love and the glory and the goodness of God. This is why we are to commit our ways to the Lord because his ways are higher than our ways. As the heavens are above the earth, so are his ways above our ways, right? So we trust in him and we trust him to act. And this promises that he will. Say, so your kingdom Come. Say, your will be done. Verse 6 of Psalm 37. Here we go. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and patiently wait for him. Fret not yourself. Again, fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. Now I'm going to read that again. Because I think there's some freedom in here for somebody. Right? Like, fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his own way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off. God's going to handle it. But those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. This is talking about the day of judgment. And what follows... The wicked are cut off, but the righteous remain to inherit the new heavens and the new earth. Verse 10. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him, but the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. Like the day that makes God laugh at the wicked is the day that we're presented with here in Revelation 20. Like he sees the wicked thinking that they're prospering and they've got it all together and he's like, Ha! I'm coming and I'm coming back and I'm coming soon. So let's drop back and walk through Revelation 20 verse 11 now. In light of all of that, what we're seeing is the answer to that. That was a vision in Psalms of what we're seeing fulfilled in detail in Revelation 20. So verse 11 said... Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. So what we're seeing here is the end of history as we know it. This is the vision of what takes place in that transition from this fallen world into the physical consummation of all creation as heaven comes to earth and God makes everything spiritually and physically new. His throne is presented here as pure white, which symbolizes the purity and righteousness with which he judges all of creation. Like, what he says is true. It's pure. It's right. It's righteous. It's good. That's what the whiteness of the throne means. His authority is, is, like, total and complete and pure. And then the imagery of the earth and the sky fleeing from his presence emphasizes that all which has been twisted or corrupted by human sin in the first creation has been undone. In other words, that desert wasteland is a thing of the past. It's no more. It's not a thing that you're going to have to deal with anymore. It flees like the dark flees the light as his unmitigated presence and glory is brought to bear upon creation. When that happens, sin runs. Remember, this is all in preparation for the renewal of all things, which is coming in the next chapter, right? In Revelation 21. The old is gone, and the new is coming, not just spiritually, but physically. That's what we get to look forward to. And all that has been cursed and corrupted by sin has got to go with it. P.S., I want you to notice that this is why the New Testament emphasizes that if we are spiritually new creations in Christ then we are dead to sin now. Get this. Hear this language. This is the way the Bible talks about it. That the old is gone and the new has come spiritually. You still have physical bodies that are corrupted by sin in a physical world that's corrupted by sin. But spiritually, you've been risen in Christ. Spiritually, you've been made new creations in Christ Jesus. Spiritually, the old man is dead and you've been resurrected to new life in Christ Jesus. Even now. This is our identity. Because what you've got to understand is that you either spiritually die to sin now or you will spiritually die to sin for eternity then. Because spiritual death is the second death that the Bible talks about. It's the lake of fire that it talks about here. That's an eternal death. It's not an end. It's a continual death. More on that in a little bit. on an individual level even. So all of mankind from every generation, both unbelievers and believers, are depicted here as standing before the throne. All of them. It's important. The sea, death, and Hades give up their dead. Remember that often in the Bible, maybe you didn't know this, if you've been walking through Revelation with us, you know that the sea represents death and destruction and chaos. And it's often presented alongside, throughout the Bible, not just in Revelation, but uh, throughout uh, the sea is often presented alongside the abyss or death in the grave or sheol, right? These are, this is the language of Scripture. So what's uh, being communicated here is that the grip of death itself has been released over the dead and they all experience a physical resurrection, all of them, both the righteous and the unrighteous. Now, not have known that. In other words, everyone will be given a resurrected body capable of receiving an eternal judgment before the throne. Everybody, great and small, believer and unbeliever. Uh, Just to drive that point home, Jesus said in John 5, 28 through 29, he's talking about his authority to execute judgment. And he says, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Okay? So everyone's going to be standing before the great white throne of judgment. Everyone. And it says that they will be judged according to what they had done, which seems a bit odd or off-putting if you know your Bible, right? Like if you know your Bible, that should sound like, "Uh, are we judged by what we do? Because what do you do when you face confusing passages, though, in Scripture? What do we do? What do we do? We go with our gut feeling, right? Right, When you see Scripture and you're like, that's confusing, I don't understand it, we, we kind of go like, well, I don't think I like what that says. And so we go with our opinions on what it should say, right? No, we let Scripture interpret Scripture. Always. Right? So, Ephesians 2, verse 8 through 9, has a little light to shed on the subject here, right? Like it says... For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Right? So we're not saved by works. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Amen? But this passage really sounds like we're all going to be judged according to our works. Like, uh, what's going on here? What is happening? Bear with me. All right? Lean in. It gets a little heady because I want you to see the fullness of what's happening here. Okay? I mean, it says that the dead are judged according to what they had done. So maybe, maybe, maybe it just means that the unbelievers are judged according to what they had done, and it's not talking about the believers. It's not talking about Christians. Right? Maybe that's what it says. Like many have made that case here, and it's a great case to be made. In fact, they would say that there are two different sets of books in this passage for a reason. They'd point out the fact that there are the first set of books, which are called like the books, if you see that in verse 12. Can you throw that scripture on the, the screens? Go back to verse 12 and 13 and put it up there so you can all see it with me. If you look back at, uh, yeah, 12. Um, It's like the first set is referred to as the books in verse 12, which encompasses all that was said and done by everyone outside of Christ. So these are the works of unbelievers, right? And the second is a separate category of book, and it's called the book of life, which is like the registry of the citizens of heaven who have been washed by the blood of the Lamb. Right? So if your name is written in the book of life, then you're not judged by your works, you're judged by his work on your behalf. Okay? That makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? And that jives with Ephesians 2. I read that, I'm like, yeah! There it is! There's truth all over that, because we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Now I remember reading this again and being like, case closed. Right? But if we're really being honest with our approach of letting scripture interpret scripture here, then we got to let the rest of the Bible speak to it also, right? And so passages like 2 Corinthians 5.10 come to mind, where the apostle Paul is speaking to the Christians in Corinth, and he says that we make it our aim to please God in both this life and the next. Amen? Good aim, good goal, right? And then he says in verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, slightly relevant, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So, there it is again. What's going on? Like, it's starting to sound like we're all going to be judged by what we do again, right? And he's he's talking to Christians. He's talking to Christians who make it their aim to please Christ, which is really a defining characteristic of true Christianity, those who want to please the king. Amen? Amen? So this sounds like the book of life might actually be presented as part of the collection of books that contain the works of each and every one of us, including believers before the throne. So what's going on? Is this like a big contradiction? I'm glad you asked. (laughs) No, it's not. Thank you for uh, humoring, like getting inside of my mind a little bit there and seeing how we work through scripture. I wanted to show that to you. I want you to see, though, that this is not a contradiction. In fact, this is a very necessary nuance that we all need to grasp about true Christianity. And that is that if we are justified by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone, which we are, right, If that's true, then it's also true that we've not been left alone, but we've been set apart by his spirit for the good work of kingdom living. In other words, James puts it like this, that you're justified. Like He he makes it clear that while you're justified by grace through faith, if your life doesn't reflect any change through the way you live, then that faith is dead. Faith without works is dead. That's what he says. You're not justified by works. But if you don't have any works, it's probably a symptom that you ain't justified by faith. Thomas Schreiner put it like this so blame Thomas, not me. <laughs> he said, True faith expresses itself in a changed life, though not a perfect life, to be sure. You hear that? Revealing the transformation taking place by God's grace. Those who live in the same way they did before conversion reveal that they never truly belonged to God. So the works here that we're seeing are like corroborating evidence of a true change of your heart. If that corroborating, corroborative, I need an attorney, evidence, right, isn't there, the question then becomes, Or not question, but the declaration of your heart then is, Lord, change me. Renew me. Right? Help me believe. Lord, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Because in Matthew 7, Jesus talks about recognizing healthy trees versus unhealthy trees by the fruit that they produce. And then he suddenly launches into this very short parable and he says in verse 21 of Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father is in heaven. Who is in heaven? Excuse me. The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That's the one who's going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Your will be done. On that day, many will say to me. And what day is he talking about? Judgment day. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Okay? That's scary, and yet, praise God for it, because there's clarity given in this. Because the point here is that though they associated with Jesus with their mouths, okay, their works were aligned with their own hearts. Their works exposed their lack of true fellowship with Christ as Savior and King. Dietrich Bonhoeffer made the distinction between what he called cheap grace and costly grace in his classic book called The Cost of Discipleship. It's a great book. If you have not read it, I encourage it. And he said this. This is a long quote, quote so lean in. German guy. He was awesome. He is awesome. He's with Jesus. Here we go. He said this. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. But then he distinguishes it from costly grace and he says this. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy Which the merchant will sell all of his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It's the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again. The gift which must be asked for. The door at which a man must knock such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. It, and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. Ye were bought at A price, and what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. It's intense, isn't it? P.S. Bonhoeffer was executed by Hitler's Gestapo in 1945 for his involvement with the assassination attempt on Hitler's life known as Operation Valkyrie. You might have seen the movie, Tom Cruise, anybody? Anyway, side note. Um, again, here's the point. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 is absolutely eternally true and trustworthy, Right? Like, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But don't forget to keep reading. Don't forget to keep reading. Verse 10. How am I on time? Not good. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. That's not a contradiction. That's the fullness of the statement. Right, this is why so many passages in Scripture speak like this. It's why we need to read our Bibles and not just listen to our own opinions or gut feelings on the matter. Right, Hebrews ten verse twenty three through twenty five. Hebrews ten verse twenty three through twenty five says this: Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as it is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's important. See, this is the gospel of the kingdom, this is it. God became a man. He lived the life that we couldn't live, and he died the death that we deserve to die. And he conquered death in the grave, and he paved the way to eternal life. And that life starts now, not just one day when we die. It starts now through the indwelling and filling of his spirit who breathes eternal life into our souls. And the old dies and the new is coming or has come. And he makes you a new creation even now in Christ Jesus. Risen in Christ to eternal life now. And this eternal life that we have spiritually is what saves us from that second death. Which is what we talked a bit about last week. But remember, for those who are spiritually raised to new life in Christ now, you will be physically raised to new life in Christ at his physical return. And you're not going to taste the second death. That's the promise. According to 1 Corinthians 15, 26, he says that death is the last enemy. And that's exactly what we see here in the last two verses of Revelation 20. Verse 14 says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Death itself. Is thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is actually the third time that we've been told uh, about this lake of fire and the second death um, in Revelation. Jesus himself said in Revelation 2, right out of the gate here, um, in Revelation like more than a year ago now, um, we read this, that he said, he who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Right? Revelation 20, verse 6, last week, told us that the second death has no power over believers who experience the first resurrection, which is that spiritual resurrection we've been talking about in Christ. So if you've been spiritually raised by Christ through faith in Christ, then you won't experience spiritual and unending death. It says that the one who conquers will not be heard by the second death. And here we go. How does Revelation say believers conquer the enemy? Revelation 12, 11, our memory verse for the whole series. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death, which allowed them to do some pretty awesome works, I would say. We got martyrs in Afghanistan doing some pretty Awesome works before people who are intimidating the snot out of them with death itself. And we have even, there are reports of children, children standing firm in their faith in the face of death and not denying Christ. Woo! It's powerful. That enemy is conquered. They were living for a greater kingdom than their own kingdom, captivated by a greater king than themselves. So to the point that, that, well, this is the point, that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and that we're called and empowered to live differently in this world as those who cry out from the bottom of our hearts, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So my prayer is way beyond simply hoping that our names are written in the book of life. Like, listen to me, don't get me wrong, that's awesome. That's awesome. Right. If your name is written in the book of life, you should rejoice and throw an eternal party. Right. But even more than that, risen church, my prayer for you and for me and for my kids and for all of us, it, that it wouldn't just be that our names are called from the roll book of the book of life, but that we would hear from him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. That's what I'm praying to hear. Right? I want you all to hear that. See, those who are just trying to get their names on the roll call are probably the very ones who are going to hear him say, Away from me, evildoers, I never knew you. That's the reality. Because to know Jesus truly is to love him. To know him is to leverage your life and to pl- want to please him and worship him. To know him is to be known by him and to fall deeper and deeper in love with the things he loves. It's to cry out for your kingdom to come and your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is who we are. This is, we're not a perfect people, amen? <laughs> but we are a perfectly loved people who are captivated by a perfectly loving savior and king. I'm going to close with this. Look, there are two ditches on either side of this truth, okay? On the one side, you have the cheap grace ditch, right? That doesn't take Christ's call to holiness seriously, which, as Bonhoeffer pointed out, isn't really grace at all. Cheap grace isn't really true grace, right? But on the other side is the legalism ditch, okay? See, that the legalist hates the fact that they can't earn salvation. The legalist doesn't love God. They're trying to earn his love by being good enough. They're trying to be God. The legalist is that religious person who's super critical of everybody, especially themselves, because their mindset is all about being good enough in themselves to earn heaven and be impressive. They have the appearance of godliness, but they've denied the power of intimacy and love. That's the power of God. Their hearts are far from God, and eventually they will grow to resent him because deep down they, never, uh, they know that they'll never be good enough. Right? Our pride, listen, our pride wants to earn salvation so we can brag about it. That's legalism. Holiness is not legalism. Desiring to please God, that ain't legalism. Right? That's the heart that's been captivated by his goodness. The one that realizes that he's not good enough in and of himself is the legalist. Our pride wants to stand before the throne of God with a resume in hand and say, Look at here. Look at how good I am. Look at all the great things I did. Give me credit. That's Pride. And see, pride will sneak in and pretend to be humility and say, oh, I'm such a wretched sinner, I'll never be good enough. And can't get over the fact that they can't be good enough. Get over yourself. And receive the joy of Christ. He was good enough for you. It sounds humble, but it's pure arrogance. People that are hypercritical of themselves are often hyperprideful. That's why they're often extremely judgmental of others, because they can't stand not being the best. Many people use religion as an attempt to bolster their pride in a game of performance and comparison, as though God and everybody else should be very impressed with their religious resume. But the true gospel is that your way is the wrong way. You're less than the best. He's the best, and there's nothing you can do about it, which is why... That religious spirit tends to waffle between pride and shame. But the joy of Christ is that you can't be good enough to earn salvation. Only the life of Christ is enough to pay the penalty you deserve. Until you come to grips with that, you're never really going to receive his grace because you can't earn it. Until you recognize that, then yes, even your best works will be like filthy rags unto the Lord because you're presenting them as a resume of your own glory. And that's an inherent re- that is an inherent rejection of his glory. But when you work for his pleasure, because you've been delivered, it's a sweet aroma to him. And he delights in it, and he delights in you. Jesus will not be m- used as a means by which we can glory in ourselves. He is not a genie in a bottle who came to make you awesome. He's a savior king who came to rescue you from your own self-worship because you can't earn salvation. That's what fosters that bitter and resentful heart towards God. That's the epitome of legalism. And that's why legalists are so hateful. But in the middle, in the middle, this gospel of the kingdom, this path to eternal life, this path of trusting Jesus with your whole heart, if you're overwhelmed by not being good enough, then trust Jesus to be enough for you. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. He promises all who are weary and heavy laden to come to him and he will give you rest if the, if you Look, if you are anxious about whether or not you can live the life that Jesus has called you to live, then you are focused on you. Then you are missing the point. This lie is like, it'll, this is where anxiety comes from, is relying upon ourself rather than his grace. And he's promised that his grace is sufficient. He's promised that our, his power is actually made perfect in our weakness. And all of our fear about the future is simply an opportunity to trust him with our future, even in the present. The Apostle Paul is, is, is well known for being the disciple who denied Christ three times. Remember that guy? Peter. I said Paul. It's in my notes. That's Peter. I don't know what I'm talking about. Peter. He's, he's well known as the... Um, disciple who denied Christ three times, he's also the one who took his eyes off Jesus while walking on the water and began to sink. Like, this is a guy that, that, like, whenever I think about whether I have what it takes to live up to the calling God has placed on me, I think about Peter. He fell short constantly, right? I think he truly desired to follow Jesus, but when it came down to it, he just didn't have it in him until he had the Spirit of God in him. You ever thought about that? He denied Christ. But after he had been filled with the Spirit, he died for Christ. Think about that. You know why? Because it was a contingent not upon his strength in himself, but the Spirit within him. In fact, church history tells us that Peter's faith and boldness was so strong at the end of his life that not only did he not deny Jesus when he was filled with the Spirit, but even he, after watching his family brutally murdered in front of him, he asked to be crucified upside down because he didn't deserve to be killed in the same way as his Savior. Like, if you're intimidated or anxious about uh, because you fear not being good enough or what God called you to in the future, you're not going to be enough for it or He's not going to be there, then I want to encourage you to take your eyes off yourself and trust in the God of all comfort who dwells within you and will dwell within you then, in that future. His grace is sufficient for you today and His grace will be sufficient for you on that day. Whatever you face, be at peace, people. He's good. He's the one that the prophet Isaiah said in 40, verse 4, chapter 40, verse 29... He said that he's the one who gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases his strength. That even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength, and they shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. If you've been justified by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, then you're not going to be left alone. You've been set apart and empowered by his spirit for the good work of kingdom living. Let's pray.